welcome to The Natural Selection, where this week's theme is fresh water. Hello listeners, welcome back. Uh, it's been another week has passed. We are The Natural Selection. Uh, so we're a group of taxonomists who want to bring their passion for nature into the wild. So each week we pretty much get together and chat about the natural world. Uh, in the first section, we talk about nature news and interesting research that we found. Uh, but in the second section, we talk on a different theme each week and how that relates to sort of flora and fauna around the world. And this week's theme is freshwater. Uh, but I suppose you should meet us. We were definitely a class, maybe a family. And in no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. Uh, Nick. Hello. And I am other Nick. How is everyone? How have you been, Naomi? Yeah, good. Uh, very warm. Uh, there's a bit of a heat wave going on at the moment. Um, I'm not built for this kind of temperature, but I'm doing okay. How about you, Nick? How are you doing? Well, uh, predictably, I've, I'm the happiest I've been in months um, because it's finally, finally warm. <laughs> uh, I'm comfortable anywhere between 20 and 40, and it's finally just gotten over 20 at night. Um which is like just what I want. <laughs> Wasn't it 35 yesterday? The last three days it's been 35, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I've been a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> I've been outside for like six to nine hours every day. <laughs> uh, so both me and Naomi, for the listeners who obviously can't see through the radio waves, um, have a tinge of red in our hair. <laughs> and 35 degrees is not our natural natural habitat whereas nick looks fresh as a daisy but yeah i suppose we should get on with the news you guys up for that wait nick how are you oh you <laughs> i thought you'd i was just happy no. to ignore him i was like oh yeah okay <laughs> i'm okay yeah busy few days I moved countries and I, I ate a shawarma, which uh, is not the same thing in England. So that's quite nice. So, yeah, that was that was probably the highlight. Now you're back in the land of um, famous laptop stealing boars. Have oh, yes. That, the viral picture that went last earlier this week. So this should have been our nature. No. News. Right. Can I can I tell you my gripe with this, Nick? If you explain yeah, the story, I just want you to know throughout the entire thing that there's something that bothers me about this. But go ahead. OK. Um, if you haven't seen, there's an article in the BBC and I think The Guardian as well, showing some pictures of a wild boar with her babies carrying off a, what's supposedly a laptop bag uh, while a naked Berlin man runs after it because the uh, there's a, a Freie Körperkultur, a free body culture lake in the middle of the forest on the west of Berlin. And um, the boars there are a bit hungry, but laptops was not really uh, not always on the menu. So I looked up the picture, sorry. <laughs> so my issue here is right. If you want to be close to nature and you want to do that in a naked way in an area where that is allowed, there's absolutely no reason to judge you for that. I'm totally on board with that. But if you want to get like be all like free and close to nature, leave your laptop at home. Do you admin another time? That's a good point. That's a good point. And I stand by that. <laughs> if any listeners are listening 
in a field in the nude with their laptop. Just know that I'm judging you. Not being in the nude, just to be clear. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for the laptop. Cool. On that revelation, should we hit the news? Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be back after this short break. Welcome back, listeners. So we've been trawling the articles to find out some interesting nature news from this week. Uh, I found something from the other side of the world, which is quite pleasing, because obviously we can't travel very far this week. There was some studies done by uh, Gemmel et al. from the University of Otago in New Zealand, and they were looking at Tuatara's genomes. So I think we've mentioned Tuataras as being quite strange animals uh, before on the podcast. So they, they look exactly like lizards, but they're crucially not lizards. And what this was looking at is what makes them unique. So they think they actually split from lizards and snakes and everything else that sort of descended from there about 250 million years ago. So a long, long time ago. Um, and they're, they're very, very different. So they found some amazing things. One, it had one of the biggest genomes of uh, any vertebrate that they've, that they've sequenced. Absolutely enormous genome. And they found some really, really interesting things in there. So the first one was that it has sort of like genetic architecture that, that had never been seen before. So they had like these weird amalgam of features that they would either be seen as exclusively reptile or exclusively mammal. And Tuatara has mm. both. And this is very odd because obviously it has nothing to do with mammals. It's a very, very early uh, amniote, which is the collection of sort of birds, reptiles uh, and mammals. Um, they're quite interesting animals anyway. Uh, they live, they think they live for the second longest time of any reptiles after things like tortoises. They can live over a hundred years. So they were looking at their genomes for things like that. And they found that there are genes associated with uh, immunity. They also found that they have the, one of the lowest um, operating temperature of any uh, reptile, it operates about 20 degrees. So there was also genes related to thermal regulation. And interestingly, they found loads and loads of genes, which uh, lizards don't usually have, in odour reception, as many as usually birds have. So they think that they might use smell to hunt their prey. The last big revelation they found was that looking at it, they assumed previously that Tuataras were very fast evolving, that there was there was a very quick turnover of genetic material. What they found is they actually incredibly slowly uh, uh, evolving, that their genome isn't changing at a very fast rate at all. So it's a very, very slow evolving animal. So it sort of, uh, yeah, blew their mind in quite a number of ways, which is quite cool to find. That's cool. That's really interesting. I feel like I didn't know very much about the Chuachara before, but I've learned so much about it in the last few episodes. It's weird. (laughs) That's what I'm learning. Yeah, it's the weird animal. It's the one with the third eye on its head. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, This whole time I've been trying to come up with a good Tuatara pun and nothing's coming to me. Uh, maybe you're trying to a tard. Okay, we'll take it. <laughs> I will let you judge me. That was all right for like on the spot. Yeah, that was pretty on the spot. I was hoping you'd come up with something with the prompt. <laughs> so I love when when a study turns out like that, where scientists thought this one thing, but it turned out it was the exact opposite thing. It's nice. <laughs> Yeah, it's reassuring that there's probably still a job for all of us in the future. Or the exact opposite. Yeah. 
So what have you found this week, Nick? Mm, well, I don't have anything quite so lovely. Um, the study that I found this week is from an international team of researchers looking at seabed mining and its impact on local biomes. So essentially, they start this whole article by saying seabeds make up 90% of the Earth's biome by area, which is insane. Um, of course, the life is actually quite is much more spread out than it is in other places, but it's a huge amount of the Earth's surface taken up by these sort of like really extreme environments down at the bottom of the ocean. And also because it's so far, it's been difficult to access. Now is only now is becoming an area of mining and sort of economic interest. So there's a lot of seabed mining, digging deep, looking for oil, but also, which I found interesting, there's a lot of like pot, like multi-metal conglomerate mining oh. happening at the bottom of the sea ocean, particularly in a type of like nodule of metal that aggregates on shark teeth and then falls to the bottom of the ocean. Um, that they can mine. Like, it's like a weird aggregate of metals. I, I didn't. I haven't quite. I'm not a uh, med. You know, I'm not a metal metallurgist. I'm not a full metal alchemist. Let's just say. Really, <laughs> it really seems like you know a lot about it. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> My specialty is um, it's um, more on the animal side of things than the. But basically, their research is saying, uh, it's a review of the literature, and it takes a look at studies that have made claims about the impact of seabed mining on local ecosystems and basically says that there are huge misconceptions even within the scientific literature and that seabed mining is much more devastating on a global scale than we think, which is why my news today is the bad news. They looked at a 1.5 million square kilometer area of seabed that's been contracted for mining and the mining plots are sort of patchy it's not the whole thing that's being mined of course but the areas of influence from each specific mining point essentially cover the whole 1.5 million acres or 1.5 million square kilometers so this this sort of like area of influence that they've mapped out based on what they know from studying deep sea ecosystems shows that even if you mine in a very spread out way the mining impact sort of like can cover a huge amount of area so if i'm to understand i don't know if this is a very pessimistic reading of what you just said does that mean we've managed to cause 1.5 million square kilometers of damage that's right yeah that's a lot yeah but it's at the bottom of the ocean it's uh no it's awful it's terrible so some good news perhaps <laughs> yeah so my news is good i would say mostly good there is a little bit of bad news kind of tied in with it but mostly good and mine is about using satellite images that have been able to find new colonies of emperor penguins so this was published in remote sensing in ecology and conservation basically they used the satellite images from the the european space agency's sentinel 2 satellite and they were able to track penguin poop so from these areas of guano that they found, they've been able to identify 61 colonies. Uh, so they knew about 50 and they were able to confirm eight new colon colonies and reconfirm the others that they weren't sure if they were still there. Now, the bad news of the uh, on the other side of this is that these colonies are actually tend to be in, in areas that are highly vulnerable to climate change. So they're in some some of them are on areas that are sea ice. 
So, yeah, it's great because there's 20% more colonies than we thought, but these colonies are probably kind of small. So this maybe only account for an increase of about 5 to 10 in the penguin population. So good news in, the, in that there's more penguins than we thought, but bad news in that they're maybe not in the best locations for climate change. I mean, generally penguins didn't pick a backing horse in, in the climate change regions. No. No, yeah. bless them. They weren't to know. No. <laughs> but yeah, so it's really cool as well, because I had never really thought about using satellite images for this sort of, for like examining areas, particularly areas that are hard to get to or hard to study, you know, because they're hard to access. So it's cool that they were able to use satellite imagery for this. I do really like the idea of like astronauts looking at the International Space Station and being like, is that, is that penguin poo? Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised like how, how there must be so much of it, like how, how visible it must be if you can see it from space. But yeah, like, they are very high resolution images, but still. Well, um, this is join us uh, after this short break where we'll be back to talk about our theme, which this week is freshwater. Uh, welcome back, listeners. So this week's theme is freshwater, like I said. So we've got some interesting facts. Uh, seeing as we ended on the Antarctic, I found out something cool. Have you guys ever heard of Lake Vostok? No, I haven't. It sounds Russian. It does, doesn't it? And there's a reason for that. It's because it's named after a Russian research station, which is on top of it. But it is pretty far away from Russia. It's pretty far away from any country because it's under the East Antarctic Ice Sheet. Holy crap. Is it what? Yeah. So this is a lake that is under some ice. And when I say under some ice, I mean really under some ice. So... This lake is a freshwater lake. It's approximately 4,000 metres under the surface of the ice. So there's four kilometres of ice on top of it. This is the plot of an H.P. Lovecraft horror story for sure. Yeah. So what's interesting is why would I bring this up on a nature show? Like some forgotten lake that's buried under four kilometres of ice in Antarctica, in one of the most inhospitable regions of Earth, right? So they decided to take out some of the water and they ran DNA testing on it, and they found 3,507 unique gene sequences. Uh, approximately 94% of the sequences were from bacteria, and 6% were from eukarya. But what they found is that actually they think there are probably some multicellular eukarya down there. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So there's things that have been living under that 4,000 kilometers of ice quite happily without our knowledge. What's down there? I know. I can't get my head around 4,000 meters of ice deep. In fact, how tall is Mount Everest? 9,000 meters. So Everest is 9,000 meters. So it's nearly half a Mount Everest. That's insane. To think that life is down there living despite all of this, is quite amazing and just sort of shows that how adaptable it is. Maybe this is me being, like, not very knowledgeable on what lakes are, but presumably it's fresh water then that, that like, what, how, 
is it just water that's melted like how did it form so there is a definition for a lake because not all lakes are freshwater uh, oh okay the largest lake in the world the caspian sea is actually not a sea it's a lake uh, but it is a is a saltwater lake oh. and that is yeah that border is like kazakhstan it's in that part of the world but i think it's to do with like continental shelves okay and i think an ocean is on a continental shelf but Lake Vostok is freshwater lake, yes? Yeah, Lake Vostok is wow. freshwater. Cool. Yeah, right. I sure hope so, because this is the freshwater episode. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't want to mislead you like that. That's why I've not brought up um the Caspian Sea. So Nick, you're telling us about this super cool, unique ecosystem. It's pretty big, I imagine, if it's four thousand meters down there. But I want to share with you guys another freshwater ecosystem that is super small. Have you guys heard of bromeliads? Bromeliads are a kind of plant best represented or best known by uh, the pineapple, that, which is that's a type of bromeliad. So they have this sort of um, fan structure in many of the bromeliads, and they're especially well known for being epiphytes, growing on in high up in the canopies of rainforests. But the other thing that they're known for is having tank habits, is what they're called. Uh, it's where the center part of the plant grows really tightly together, but with a concavity, like a tube or a bowl. And anytime it rains, the bowl fills up with water and it doesn't leak out because the plant grows so tightly together around the edges. And then within that bowl, things start to grow, like other plants and uh, insect larvae and even little vertebrates like frog eggs or little, like little tadpoles can grow up in this plant pond and oh sometimes God. they can be as small as like just an inch or two across some of them are as big as maybe 20 inches in diameter and have much uh, sort of big ecosystem but as you can imagine they're really fragile ecosystems because the water and nutrients are coming from the air so any nutrients that need to enter this ecosystem float in on dust particles or fall in from above that's cool. Wow. I do wonder, do you guys know the name of, I've forgotten it, where uh, species which are really useful for testing the health of an ecosystem? So dragonflies are a really good one for fresh water. Maybe you see dragonflies, it means the pond they're living is actually clean and not polluted. So I wonder if these are a similar thing, that if you find uh, these healthy tank habitats, that it's a good indication that it's a yeah healthy environment around it. Hmm. Does this like benefit the plant in some way, or is it just sort of like an act? Like, is it just sort of something that happens that that doesn't disadvantage it, or you know? It may be that the by having animals and things sort of living around and being around it, it gets nutrients in some way. I know that insect poop contains nitrogen. Vertebrate hmm. poop contains nitrogen that plants usually, especially plants that don't live in soil, need. Mm. so maybe but i'm not sure do you know what i think this is the most you've talked about poo yeah well um there's a couple of other cool curious freshwater scenarios i want to share with you guys one from pretty local to us nick uh i went swimming this past week in that lake where the wild boar was and i did some research on the lake after getting home and found out that it's a protected natural habitat, but also a swimming lake, because in one part of the lake that's blocked off from swimmers, 
there's a rare in Europe, it's not endangered around the world, but in Europe, it's called a bitterling. It's a small freshwater fish, and it has a curious mating routine where the males will protect a clump of mussels and they sort of they get really territorial over these mussels and they try to attract a female to their little mussel clump. And then hmm, and then the females come over and they have a protruding ovipositor that like a tube extends from their fish body and they stick the tube into the breathing apparatus of the mussels and lay the eggs inside the mussel. Then the males come over and basically ejaculate into the mussel's breathing apparatus, which then sucks in the water from outside because that's what mussels do. And it fertilizes the eggs inside the mussel. The eggs develop and grow. And then finally the larvae swim out after they've grown in the protected space of the mussel. Do the... (laughs) Do the females prefer males with more muscles? Well, I think that's an animal kingdom rule. (laughs) Apparently, this type of fish was used as an early form of pregnancy test, because if you inject the female fish with the urine of a pregnant woman, human, the ovipositor will protrude because of the hormones in the urine. Ah. Who did that? (laughs) Yeah, who thought of that one? There's who many things. had the wee of a pregnant woman? A syringe. A syringe full of pregnant woman wee. Like, firstly, they had to get that and ask politely, and someone had to give it. And then, once they had it, they were like, well, might as well inject these fish. Just the women mind. They used to do it to lots of different animals. They, they, they Like, the early pregnancy tests were basically, like, injecting an animal with pee. Did the mussel get eaten by these hatchlings? No, just like the bromeliads, they're sort of a passive protector. Oh, okay. So yeah, they're probably just sitting there, and then after like a few weeks, like, what the bloody hell was that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you guys yeah. see that? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> this is the reason why this fish is rare, is because they rely on this type of freshwater mussel, which is the mussels actually is the ha- one whose habitat is being most quickly destroyed. The fish can survive in a lot of different places, but the mussel needs a particular type of muddy stream bank. The last cool freshwater scenario I want to share with you guys is just a quick list of some animals that breathe air but live underwater that aren't like our, you know, classic whales, dolphins, that sort of thing. Though we'll, I think, have a little bit of dolphin in a minute. I wanted to share with you guys, maybe you've heard of the boatman or the diving bell spider? Of course. Yeah. These uh, spiders have hairs on their abdomens, little tiny hairs, and they can basically, when they dive underwater, air sticks to the hairs, and they swim down under, uh, they've woven a sort of net of a web, and they can brush off the air bubbles into the net. So they create this sort of like diving bell, an underwater air bubble for themselves that they can live in, eat food in, nurse their young in. It's a pretty cool living room under, underwater situation. But they're not the only animals who do this. There are also lizards who can create a helmet of air around their head that sticks to them basically via some sort of molecular cohesion that I don't understand because I'm a biologist, not a physicist. And uh, But they're very small. Uh, and then finally, I was just reading today about some 
mammals that do something not they don't breathe underwater in this way but there are shrews and the star-nosed mole that both they go underwater they breathe out a big air bubble and then before it bursts or separates from their nose they inhale it again and apparently it's a way to test the water for smells for other animals around them i never really think of smelling as being a thing that would happen underwater like i know that it's through like chemicals and and like hormones so in theory they could go through water but it just isn't something i think of in water interesting yeah that's still that's why we had a bath (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty cool though being able to take down your own oxygen supply i suppose we can do that we're mammals who can do that but we Mm -hmm. cheat yeah well yeah so do they yeah but yeah i suppose i mean you neglected dolphins they're, they're like they're yeah i gave it. dolphins a short a short shrift there i think i think that <laughs> we really should maybe we should talk more about dolphins what do you guys think yeah i i'm happy to i i definitely can talk a little bit about dolphins so i have some information about river dolphins because i was i i, I wanted to look them up because I think they're really cool kind of charismatic species but then when I started researching it I realized that it was kind of hard to look up there's a couple of things that I found like a lot of contradictory bits of information on different websites so you know in some places I found uh, that there are seven species of river dolphin and another place I found that there's five and then somewhere else it said four so I suspect it's probably that some people are combining some species and some people are splitting other species or maybe some are considering subspecies as full species that kind of thing but these dolphins can be found in parts of south america and asia and they're actually like you guys mentioned other species that are like this but they're indicators of river health so if the dolphin population is doing well it's a, a good indicator that this body of freshwater is thriving and unfortunately these populations of river dolphins aren't generally doing that well all the ones that I looked at were at least vulnerable. Some of them are critically endangered. Um, some of them are threatened. And then one species was data deficient. So there's just not enough information on it to know. Um, but I wanted to talk about one particular species because it was the one that I could find the most information on. And it was the Amazon River Dolphin, which is sometimes commonly called the Pink River Dolphin. Um, so they're kind of cute, very charismatic looking. Um, They have like a little bulbous head and a very long sort of beak with cute pointy teeth. And something I just discovered today was that the the bulbous part of the dolphin's head is called a melon. Did you guys know this? No, but I love it. Yeah, so it's called called a melon. That's an English slang for head. Yeah, and I didn't, I was like, because when I looked it up, I was like, oh, is this just like slang? But it's actually apparently the scientific word for that bulbous part the bit that helps them echolocate so these species can echolocate because they live in quite murky parts of the river and the amazon is one of is a river that floods so they when it floods they like move in and around the trees and they actually have a special adaptation where they have unfused neck vertebrae and then it allows them to bend up to 90 degree uh, allows them to bend at an angle of up to 90 degrees and and so they're not really 100% sure why they're pink. Uh, there's a theory that perhaps it's scar tissue, 
from rough games or fighting over conquests. And so apparently the brighter pink the male are, the more attracted they are to females. So they're the largest, uh, the Botos. Well, I was going to say that that's doing me well in this heat then. <laughs> they're also called uh, Botos, aren't they? They are, yeah. Um, and they're the, the largest of the uh, river dolphin species. And interestingly, actually, river dolphins, so they're, this is something we've mentioned before, they're a paraphyletic group. So they're not actually necessarily closely related to each other, but they're sort of grouped as river dolphins because they have a little bit of convergent evolution. So they share similarities in their habitat. And I think they evolved from a marine ancestor and they sort of got pushed into rivers, I think, by the competitors or other similar species. So now they're they're in rivers permanently. So I know some slightly depressing news. Do you know the Yahtzee River Dolphin? Yes, yeah. So that was, uh, they think, the first species of cetacean that we drove to extinction. Um, it was also be the first documented of a sort of megafaunal vertebrate for 50 years to go extinct um, because they couldn't find any. They thought they'd originally lost them in the 1980s. But that was uh, in China, in the Yahtzee River. Um, and it was because of sort of heavily heavy industrialization and using these rivers as we do for sort of human consumption that it really affected their environment. And they have found some, but I think in their last count they found 13, meaning that they're functionally extinct as an animal now. Mm. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of these species definitely do seem to be not doing very well. They They have a lot of... Uh, threats that are affecting them like pollution fishing boats hitting them and i think as well because they're so restricted to one kind of habitat as well it is sad but they are they're pretty looking animals and i learned something new that they have melons and um, because yeah they they use their echolocation to help them find prey they use their melon yep so, yeah, that is interesting that they are massively unrelated. They just sort of over the world just sort of decided to go into rivers, which I suppose would make sense for, for dolphins because they can fit there. I know that river dolphins are generally smaller than the oceanic brethren. Yeah, they, they can be quite small. And I think some of them have like reduced snouts as well. The, the example that I talked about, they do have quite a long beak, but others have like very shortened snouts and faces. So I think it must kind of depend on their, their sort of habitat. But yeah, I, I realize actually kind of how little I know about dolphins in general, because they are, yeah, they're, the group, I think, seems to get kind of lumped together, but actually are also um, paraphyletic or not monophyletic anyway, dolphins as a group. Yeah, I love a dolphin. Hmm. I'd go a long way for a dolphin. It's interesting that you were sort of drawn to rivers because my immediate thought was lakes. Lakes hold most of the fresh water, don't they? And it, there's like a there's a huge amount of really, really interesting lakes. So one of the most interesting is, have you guys heard of Lake Tanganyika? I have. Uh, okay. So it borders a lot of African countries. Um, it's sort of the, the border of many different African countries. But it's an incredible lake. So it's actually the second largest lake, freshwater lake by volume and depth. Uh, there's a huge amount of water in it. It has 18,900 square kilometers of water volume, which is a lot, right? The largest freshwater big. lake has 23,600 kilometers, which is 20% of all the freshwater on Earth. 
That's a that's like a monopoly on lake. So between these two, they have uh, just under 40% of all the fresh water uh, stored. Um, and the, the number one is Lake Baikal. But the reason I was interested in Lake Tanganyika is it's wildlife. So we're all familiar with Darwin's finches and the sort of studies into them. And you might have heard of the um, Hawaiian honey creepers and understanding that when they got trapped on these islands that they sort of diversified. But another one, another big one, is Lake Tanganyika's chicklets. So these are a type of fish. Um, you can find them all over. I think the idea was they got stuck there, wasn't it? So there was a flood and they arrived in the lake and they couldn't leave. And they diversified. And I think there's over 200 species of chicklid now in this lake. Between the four lakes or, or where there mostly are, there's over 2,000, between 2,000 and 3,000 species. Oh, that's way all of the lakes. No, but they might be right in Tanganyika. That might be that number. Because they're also in Victoria, Malawi. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, just one lake has at least 250 species of chicklid fish, and 98% of them are endemic to Lake Tanganyika. Wow. So, it, yeah, they expanded to fill all these all these unusual niches, which is quite amazing. But, yeah, it's not just them as well. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. These are a really diverse group of fish. Like you said, they're a really good example of adaptive radiation because it actually hasn't been that long a space a, a period of time that they've adapted so like you said they have adapted to fill a lot of niches and so a lot of researchers have looked at this and they have analyzed their genome and something that they found is that they have a remarkably high rate of gene duplication across all species so basically this has meant that when they this is something we've mentioned before but when they have an extra set of these genes it frees one of them up to like change more so this means that they're um, a lot they're open for a lot more evolution and a lot more possibilities and then they would be without this extra copy um yeah so it's, it's really interesting they seem to have a six-fold increase above normal rates of gene duplication among these species so they're not really sure why or what triggered it because there are other relatively closely related species in other areas like the what the ancestor of what these chicklets would have been but for some reason, when they got to these lakes, they just uh, diversified. Um, so I think they went from one lake to the other. So I think they originally colonized Lake Tanganyika, and then they went to Lake Malawi, and then they went to Lake Victoria. Well, to give you an idea of how successful it was, so Lake Tanganyika um, has over 250 species, and those are just ones we discovered of chicklids. All the other non-chicklid species that we found, there's only 80. Wow. Then, yeah, not even half as many as there are chickens. Cool. So they basically outcompeted all other fish. Which is pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about water this week, and I'm from a place where there isn't a lot. Uh, and un- totally unrelated, I have a huge fear of the water. It's a, it's one of my biggest fears. Water I can't see into. But, of course, when I started doing research for this episode, I started with things that I was worried about with water. So my recent search history is like leeches, piranhas, waterborne diseases, which is what I want to talk to you about now. So let's start with the waterborne diseases. Um, Do you guys know, have you heard the name Anopheles? Is that an amoeba? You're on the right track. It, It means in Greek useless, but it's the name of a genus of mosquito that is best known for transmitting an amoeba. 
the plasmodium that, that causes malaria in humans. And Anopheles is one of many vectors that requires fresh standing water. So can I can tell only... you a really good story about this? Please. So uh, back in colonial times, uh, many countries from Europe were sort of going around the world to see what riches they could seize from other lands. And one of the more powerful things they could do is when they went to Panama is if they could drill a canal, then they would be able to control seafaring ways. So many people tried to build this canal. And one group ran over, and I think it was the French, and they were like, okay, so what causes malaria? Well, we figured this out. It's ants. Ants cause malaria. So if we stop the ants getting near us, we won't get malaria. So they thought very cleverly how to do this. And they, this is a genius idea. So what they did is under each bed, each leg would be placed into a small glass of water. Because that way, when the ants tried to climb up the glass, they would hit the water and not be able to climb up the bed and bite them and give them malaria. Um, really? Um, yeah, unfortunately... As you say, uh, these mosquitoes breed in fresh water, so they would literally have four small breeding stations at the bottom of each bed. And the expedition was ruined by malaria and they had to um, yeah, evacuate and were unsuccessful. Then a successful one was the Americans. And what they did is they went over with DDT and they sprayed everywhere with DDT. And I think even today that Panama is the tropical region with the lowest levels of malaria because of this. Whoa, and probably the lowest level of insect biodiversity. Yes. <laughs> Holy crap, I didn't know that. So besides malaria, so the non-vector-borne but water-transmitted diseases like dysentery and cholera. Cryptosporidium is another one. We had an outbreak of it in my hometown once. It's what not that it bad. Cause? And it just causes vomiting and diarrhea. It's like yeah. a, a mild... Very poo-heavy, this, this, this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like a very mild kind of like stomach flu. Hmm. Interesting. Thanks for bringing that personal anecdote. Yeah. (laughs) So Um, happily as well for what was probably a horrific situation. I didn't get it, so that was cool. Um, Now, I mentioned earlier in my list leeches, which are one of my biggest ick animals. I'm okay with most things, but a little worm tube that has a sucker on one end and a non-coagulating, chemical-coated, tooth-biting, suckering, blood-sucking end on the other end. Not my thing. It's not my vibe. Yeah. I can't even get the words out right there. Leeches come in a lot of sizes and, and shapes. There are 700 species of leech. Some leeches have puncturing, proboscis-like teeth that they use to kill, in- to kill and eat insects. Um, but not all leeches suck blood. Though, of course, many leeches do suck blood. About 480 live in fresh water. And contrary to popular belief, they don't have an anesthetic or a numbing agent in their bite. They just have very small teeth. So they latch on, they suck your blood until they're done, and then they fall off. That's leeches. Some of them are pretty cool, it turns out. The better news is with piranhas. Uh, maybe you've heard the story of, of piranhas like ripping apart a cow in seconds, um, a classic urban myth. Apparently, but the truth uh, is they rarely go into fields. <laughs> right. Apparently in the wild, piranhas rarely rip apart and just, and eat entire whole body large, ver- ver- large vertebrates, but they will bite humans. But usually it's just a sort of like a, a rip or a tear in the flesh on the hands or feet and usually not anything life-threatening. Deaths are rare. 
So that's my, the more you know about scary water things. Did you know that leeches are still used in medicine? I read uh, that also, yes. Horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, apparently it works because they're, they're still used, I think, to help blood flow, I think, and to, like... Joint therapy yeah. was one of the things that I read. Ah. So you don't like water where you can't see, Nick? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you know where yours love? Where? Lake Silfra. Nice. Have you heard of Lake Silfra? No. Is it Russian? No. In fact, uh, it's a lake which I suppose technically would separate you from me and Naomi. So it is a lake that is on the continental shelf between America on one side and Europe's continental shelf on the other. So do you know where that is? Iceland? Yes. It's where the continents are drifting apart. So there's been a lake that's been formed in between the two. So Lake Silphra is amazing because there's a part called the cathedral, which is about 100 meters long. But the water is so clear that you can actually see almost the entire 100 meter length. The visibility is only limited by the density of the water rather than any sort of impurities. And the reason is it used to be it's from a glacial meltwater. So there's glaciers in Iceland. And as they melt, they would go down and uh, fill this lake. But Iceland being a very volcanic region, not long ago, in geological sense, that there was a, a lava flow which blocked this river. So what it became is then this water would get absorbed through the earth. And I think it's called an aquifer when it's un underwater like this. And it takes the water about 30 to 100 years to go um, from this glacial melt through the earth. And it gets into um, this underground spring into Lake Silfra. Because of that, this water is basically drinking water. Uh, it's crystal clear and it's constantly all year round. It is two to four degrees. It means in the summer it's two to four degrees, but it means in the winter it never freezes. Oh. So it can provide like a constant source or water environment to things grow. But because I said because it's so cold and because it's so pure, not a lot of things live there. And there are one or two things that do live there. So you can find in there there is some very, very small fish, uh, a type of char. It's an Arctic char. Uh, which do exist around, but this is actually a dwarf char there because there's such little food. They, uh, they're called a dwarf char and they're absolutely tiny. I did see one or two. Probably what they're eating is there's a, uh, I'm going to attempt to pronounce this, Crimus tigius thingvalensis, which is unique to the lake. And it's only a tiny lake and it's a crustacean. And that's because uh, thingvalensis is the name of the national park, which is uh, where the old parliament of Iceland was. It's named after that. So you probably mm. like that lake, Nick. Yeah, I think I would, except it's so cold. Yeah, that's true. Cool. Well, on that note, I think we can move away from freshwater and say our goodbyes. But we'll be back next week. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about oceans. Got no puns relating to that. It's too hot for puns. Uh, we'll be talking about oceans. So let's see what we find. But yeah, I, I mean, like, we can be quite general. I don't want to be too Pacific. I'm still salty that I couldn't think of any puns from last week. I can't fathom how you both came up with those puns so fast. Oh. But yeah, so we'll be back again. Uh, but for this week, it's time to say goodbye. So yeah, it's a, it's a goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. It's a goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It's a goodbye from me. Goodbye.
I feel like you should know where Canada is. I know where Canada is. I'm thinking about the North Pole, dude. Hold on. <laughs> I'm pulling up Google Earth. Give me a second. 